Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, press freedom and politics, Jeremy Kyle's TV exit, and the struggle for minority-led companies to win commissions. Plus, how Chris Evans has won a million but lost eight... And in the media quiz, we play Top of the Pods to see if our guests can identify the latest developments in the podcasting universe. It's all to come in today's media podcast. And joining me today, veteran of the show, now executive editor of Business Insider UK, it's Jake Cantor. Hello. Hi. Do I'm, you not miss- sure, I'm not sure about the moniker veteran. <laughs> <laughs> you're up there with Maggie Brown now. <laughs> yeah. um, oh, well, that's a steamed company. It is, so. yeah. And you're totally not. You're silver she's yeah, gold. Yes. Um, <laughs> do you miss the broadcast beat these days? Uh, yeah, I always miss TV. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's that's a why it keeps coming back. Fantastic industry to cover. And um, look, I still watch it. Watching Chernobyl at the moment. You said that with a big smile on his yeah, face. I, I know, imagine just from the subject title, it's, it's a very depressing watch. It, well, it's not uplifting, put it that way, mm. but it's staggeringly good TV. Um, it kind of takes root in your brain and uh, makes you consider the whole, the whole, the whole thing. It was, it's, it's just very well made. Probably the best thing that Sky Atlantic has ever done. And it's a Sky original, isn't it? It's not an American. Yes, with HBO. Though, it? Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but made by Sister Pictures and a couple of other production companies. Okay, so Sister British, Pictures is, thing. is Jane Featherstone. And also joining us, journalist for theweek.co.uk, Rebecca Gilly. Hello, Rebecca. Hello. You have an exciting announcement to bring us. Yeah, I do. Um, so if you listen to the week's podcast, Week Unwrapped, you'll know that not that long ago we were um, at a live podcast festival called Podcast Live. Mm. Uh, now the brilliant minds behind that, um, Phil Riley and um, Matt Deegan, are going to do a, another one. In fact, they're going to do several other ones. Um, but This is an announcement. We knew this already. <laughs> well, What's the new bit? The new bit is that one of them is going to be true crime focused. Okay. Date and venue are TBC, but it's going to be extremely exciting. Uh, so if you're a true crime fan, it's going to be a must attend. And this is coming out of your mouth, Why? Um, I'm helping. I'm helping out with it. I'm curating, as they oh. call it. So I'm going to have. How my... modestly she just slipped that in, Jake? <laughs> curating. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I only linked myself in at the very end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are there enough really good British true crime podcasts now? Do you think to compete with the American ones? Sort of same question I asked Jake about uh, 
Chernobyl in a way. Yeah, no, there's there's some absolutely amazing ones. Um, in fact, like there's been some um, some of the pioneering true crime podcasts have been British ones. Um, My favorite murder gets lots gets lots of attention. It's kind of the major one, um, which is a US one. But there's actually a British one called All Killer No Filler, mm-hmm. which has been going on from <laughs> even earlier than My Favorite Murder. So really, British podcasts have been leading the way, and they're still going strong. Rebecca is typical of the true crime listener, apparently, Jake. Did you know this? It's all about millennial women. Right. True I can only take them genre. in small doses, I think. They have, they have to be small doses and spread far apart because they, they do infect your mind, I think. Yeah, they're absolutely terrifying. And often I've noticed that lots of them have um, adverts for home security services, which I think is <laughs> extremely unethical. Yeah, but clever. Oh, uh, yeah. First up today, we're going to talk about a legal review into the treatment of two Northern Irish journalists raising concerns over what their arrest means for press freedom. Uh, Rebecca, what's the story here? Um, So the story is uh, an ongoing case involving two Northern Irish journalists, um, Trevor Burney and Barry McCaffrey. Um, And they were investigating an incident in 1994 when six Catholic men were gunned down by anonymous gunmen in a pub in Lochin Island in Northern Ireland. Um, And they participated in a documentary about the incident called No Stone Unturned, which heavily insinuated that the Northern Irish police had been involved in pretty much a cover up and that the identities of the suspects were known to police. No one has ever been charged. Um, And they named the suspects in the documentary and then soon after that they believed that they began to be harassed by police and it culminated in police raiding their homes and their offices and seizing vast amounts of um, data and material from them much of which didn't even relate to the Lockin Island killings and all of which was months if not years wasn't it after the broadcast of this documentary yeah um, so basically the lawyers for the the two journalists are contending that the police just don't basically they're trying to have a kind of a chilling effect on other northern irish journalists who might want to look into some of the um you know some of the murkier incidents of the troubles because there are still a lot of um you know crimes that haven't been solved and murders that have just been um buried and their contention is that this is kind of a persecution of journalists who might want to uncover some of those some of those stories. Yeah, so, and not the sort of thing, therefore, Jake, that really the British police should be doing, issuing warning signals to journalists not to report things. Well, it's, it, I, mean, it, I mean, it's chilling, isn't it? And um, if you look at the environment we're in at the moment where Jeremy Hunt has just launched this very glitzy uh, review of, uh, you know, defending journalistic freedoms with Amal Clooney, um, you know, this man could be our, our future prime minister and... Uh, when we have that going on in the background, it kind of makes a mockery of the whole process, doesn't it? Do you think it's likely, though, that the NUJ are going to get what they want, which is for the police to abandon their case? Because they might have a case, they may have come across some of these sources illegally, and that's, I mean, that's fine to investigate that, isn't it? It's a different thing to go into someone's house and start rifling through all of their possessions (laughs) on the basis of one documentary that came out ages ago. Well, I mean, the court proceedings are ongoing at the moment, aren't they? Yeah, the, the most recent is that the um, the court has ruled that the police have to keep everything sealed, yeah, and that they can't. The yeah, ready. but the journalists want the material back, and that's still ongoing. And their lives are effectively on hold until then. I mean, they're not allowed to leave the country without permission from the police, which is kind of extraordinary. And I, I guess the backdrop as well is what's happening here. I mean, you mentioned Jeremy Hunt and Amal Clooney, but actually, it's an international backdrop where journalists are being persecuted all over the place and being put in prison and all the rest of it. And often we've talked on this show about how we, Britain, are kind of immune from that sort of thing, that we've got sort of fair play rules of cricket here. 
and that's not necessarily the case. Well, I think that this case proves that uh, there, you know, this is not this is not uh, a good situation for the journalists involved, and it's not good for our industry. And um, you see the level of support these two individuals are getting. I think uh, the government should take a long, hard look at this and and consider intervening. And then in the meantime, Rebecca, we've learning this week, Julian Assange has been indicted by the US for espionage. Yeah, so it's it, it's a case that's drawn a lot of attention because it really does call into question what press freedom really means. And I think what it brings up for me is that there's a variety of charges and, you know, there's kind of depending on your standpoint, there's varying degrees of legitimacy. I mean, one of the main complaints made against Julian Assange is that he leaked documents that revealed names of confidential sources whose lives could then have been in danger. And I think, you know, that's certainly a thread that I think most people would say was worth pursuing. But, you know, the cumulative effect of the charges does seem to be that they're targeting him for essentially embarrassing the US government and US military abroad. And that's obviously something that is well within a journalist's remit. And also protecting a source in one case is being interpreted as espionage. I mean, Alan Rusbridge's piece in The Guardian was quite interesting, wasn't it, where he basically said, look, I thought Assange was a bit of a dick, <laughs> but on this... It reinforced a lot of my views about Julian <laughs> yeah. Assange, I think. He kind of leaves me a bit cold. Yeah. But but on yeah. this, yeah. what's happening to him is wrong. Yeah, I mean, look, some of the work, some of the good work that he has done in the past has been undone by some of his actions that have followed, I think. I mean, yeah, he has evaded justice, he's you know, been skateboarding around the confines of a London embassy, he's grown a silly beard, you know. Uh, but, I mean, and there's, I mean, there's more serious questions about his mental health that have uh, come out in the last few days. But, you know, this case is not going to go away anytime soon. And just to add, Rebecca, to this sort of growing menacing backdrop for anyone listening to this who's a journalist, you had the whole furore a few weeks ago with the Brexit party banning Channel 4 News from their events. Yeah, this was a row over a Brexit Party rally. The Brexit Party said that Channel 4 journalists had lied to get access to a restricted area and then they had refused to leave. Channel 4 said they'd basically kind of been honey-trapped. They were invited there by a Brexit Party official and then they were accused of all of these things and banned. It generated a very um, swift backlash and then the Brexit Party reversed the decision the following day. So it hasn't really had long-term ramifications in that sense, but it brings up this idea, you know, it's very reminiscent of Donald Trump reversing CNN's hard pass to um, White House events, you know, kind of thing that we laughed at thinking, you know, this is another example of Trump behaving like a dictator. This is ridiculous. And then we've seen an example of something similar happening in this country where, you know, political parties are trying to call the shots about who can report on them and essentially who can actually say something about them. And and at the point being, of course, that what Channel 4 News said was true. So if Nigel Farage is, is saying or the Brexit Party is saying we don't like you talking about that, that doesn't make it fake news. No, it, it doesn't. And I mean, you say there was a backlash. I mean, it was interesting that some of the broadcasters didn't give their full-throated support for Channel 4. Uh, I don't know if you saw Mark Stefano had a kind of Twitter thread where he said he would check back with responses from broadcasters to uh, what had happened to the ban. And there was, there was one, I think, from LBC's Global and uh, basically said, we don't comment on these these kind of issues. Uh, and so that was him saying which other broadcasters would would join a boycott of the Brexit Party's events. Just if they support Channel 4, Channel 4 News in in this particular case and support their support their cause in in getting them you know returned to the 
front line of reporting on the on the Brexit party. And in a way, it's a shame that the ban only lasted a day because we never really did get a chance to see if ITV or BBC would, you mm. know, would respond to that and would show solidarity with Channel 4. We never quite mm. got the chance to see how it would play out. Yeah, what would be your view on that? Because it's something that got very animated on Twitter, didn't it? Lots of people that sort of work in the media and, and do a lot of tweeting were saying yeah. we should all join forces, we should all boycott the Brexit party. But you sort of wonder if it was the other way round... And, I don't know, the Liberal Democrats decided to ban Breitbart from one of their rallies for printing something about them that might have been true, but was nonetheless, you know, from a political bias, whether every other media company would be saying, we need to join in and we need to say this is outrageous. Well, the obvious, you know, the obvious answer, I think, you know, from our standpoint would be that to say, well, you know, Breitbart, they are not a credible news source and Channel 4 is. But, of course, it all depends on your viewpoint. You know, as per usual, these um, kind of reaction threads by journalists to the ban became a kind of meeting ground between the journalists and the broadcasters. And then, you know, kind of members of the public who were saying Channel 4 is fake news, BBC is fake news, all mainstream news is biased and it's time that parties of the people like the Brexit Party took a stand against them. So, you know, again, it depends completely on your viewpoint and there's a large minority of people who would probably say that Channel 4 and BBC are no different from Breitbart in their bias and that's just a reality we have to contend with. Yeah, they are wrong though, aren't they? (laughs) It's so irritating. (laughs) And this is Trump's fault, isn't it? Trump did start this whole business about calling things that are news fake news. And this is where it's got us. It's supposed to become part of this incredibly wearying online jargon. You know, if you spend much time on Facebook and Twitter, you know, which I do for, you know, as part of my job, you just get tired of seeing these comments. And it's just, it's not even that they disagree politically, you know, with something that I believe. It's the, it's the jargon. It's the constant Ramona, Snowflake, you know, it's this sort of knee jerk. It's like people have been, you know, it's like pod people, you know, they've they've imbibed this kind of Trumpian uh, vocabulary and then they're just regurgitating it online. And that, to me, is the part that scares me more than the opinions, which are the same opinions people have held for, you know, forever. Okay, let's talk about the end of the Jeremy Carl show, which is something I really wanted to talk about in the week that it happened, but we didn't have a new episode out. So here goes. Uh, The Jeremy Carl show is no more, Jake. That's right, yes. It's been taken off air by ITV. Was there any other decision following the death of that guest that ITV could have made? Well, I think, um, I mean, it's clear that ITV probably should have acted quicker in... Uh, removing the Jeremy Kyle show, probably before these reports even surfaced. Uh, it's television from a kind of bygone era, gutter television that's you know, kind of relied on misery and uh, taken advantage of some of the most vulnerable people in our society. You know, it's a contrived format uh, fronted by a shouty, uh, obnoxious presenter who doesn't really match with some of the values of authenticity that we're seeing a bit more on TV these days. But it was um, enormously popular. Yeah, um, what was it though? I mean, the ratings would have been pretty stable, but you know, we're not talking about a blockbuster show for ITV here. It, it does business for them. Uh, biggest it's, show it's, in their daytime lineup. It's it's a it's a stable part of their lineup, but it's the biggest yeah. show in their daytime lineup. <laughs> yeah, but you know, so that, if that's the case, then ITV should be commended for taking swift action in. In enacting it after these reports emerge. Maybe they could have reviewed it earlier and uh, looked at their practices on the show, but um, following the reports, they've they've clearly moved quickly. It's interesting uh, what Jake says, isn't it, that it's TV from a bygone era, Rebecca, because everything you were just saying about social media kind of harshening the debate mm. and making everything very coarse and reductive 
it's like Jake saying the opposite's now the case in, in broadcast television. People want something a bit gentler and kinder, basically. Yeah, gentle and, and kinder were the words that sprung to mind, actually, when I was um, listening to Jake just then. And it's true that I, a programme like that would not be commissioned now, or certainly it would be in a very different you know, style format. But at the same time, the reason it's been allowed to pass under the radar, and I think there's a kind of irony to this, is that the kind of people who, you know, the chattering classes of Twitter are not the kind of people who watch it. Mm. You know, it has had a very solid audience for a large number of years. And those people who are watching it, you know, a large portion of them were drawn from the same class as the people who are on it, i.e. the working class. And because middle class columnists don't watch it, you know, I don't think that it was even on their radar. And actually, there's an argument that... The the cast of the Jeremy Kyle show were more reflective of the ITV heartland, who's actually watching Channel 3 at 10 o'clock in the morning on a weekday, than this morning is, which is, you know, terribly middle class, basically, isn't it? Holly and Philip sitting around and talking about which wine to buy that evening. And actually, the Jeremy Kyle show, there's an argument, not in a very positive way, but did portray working class people on telly. Uh, I'm not sure I agree with that. I think uh, this morning is absolute heartland ITV. It's warm, it's cosy. Yeah, it's um, on brand. Yeah. But does it reflect the people that are watching? The way I look at it is this should be a lesson to all TV producers. And there is no doubt that TV formats spotlight people with kind of eccentric or unusual qualities. Uh, but in a lot of cases, those people want to be in other people's living rooms. Um, it's a responsibility now of TV producers to. Uh, look at their casting processes uh, to make sure that they are uh, doing every everything they can to have a high level of duty of care for their uh, for their participants and to make sure that their programming is beyond reproach. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating how it's now just part of the mainstream discussion around these kind of things that the participants have mental health problems. I mean, that was an obvious truth for decades, but not universally acknowledged. Yeah. Trisha Goddard, former queen of uh, the, the daytime chat show, um, had a take on this kind of scandal. And her opinion was if we stopped people with mental health problems from appearing on TV, there'd be no one on TV, um, which, you know, is a bit of a kind of sounds like a bit of a glib take. But actually, if you if you sort of look into it. I mean, it's true. You know, if you think of all of the, you know, plenty of broadcasters have been very public about mental health and addiction problems, you know. And so I think it really does come down to duty of care. I think we need to be focusing more on what happens after the show and not introducing any kind of barriers to people participating that are based on kind of classist, paternalistic concerns that working class people can't make their own decisions. Or actually just the treatment of those guests on the show. I understand the focus on why there should or shouldn't be aftercare after someone has died. But actually, just when they're on the show and the way they're being interviewed on the show, and what's extraordinary about the Jeremy Carl show, as you hinted at, Jake, is to take this morning again as, as you know, as the show that comes on afterwards or after Lorraine, as an example of a, a contrary approach. You know, you get exactly the same sort of story, don't you? Someone comes on who's lost a child or whose partner has cheated on them or who suffers from some rare affliction. Mm. And it's a sympathetic interview on the couch where they get to put their point of view. They might be challenged. But it's a sympathetic, cosy interview. Whereas on Jeremy Carl, he would literally shout at them. But it, but it caters to two impulses that people have. It's like the the two sides of the coin of the you know great British public. You know that there are a large amount of people who will happily watch this morning and listen to you know a mum raising money for her disabled children to have a special treatment and you know smile at that. And then they'll very happily watch Jeremy Kyle tear into someone who's been branded you know a benefit scrounger. And it's it, it's strange, but I guess it's part of human nature that there are lots of people who you know we 
of you know we've talked about Jeremy Kyle being kind of cruel and harsh in his in his delivery and you know in his comments to guests but there are plenty of people who tuned into the show and think you know this is just common sense what he's saying is just the truth what did you make of the claims in the dispatches documentary Jake I should say that ITV have denied them that producers sometimes allowed guests drugs or alcohol before they were on the Jeremy Kyle show I actually haven't watched the dispatches documentary so if that is the case then Clearly, there's been a, a failure of process on, on, the, on the part of the producers. And if ITV was reviewing this, which they clearly did as part of the process to, to, to axe the programme, I'm sure that the issues on this programme were not just limited to one death. And as someone who has been close to the TV business for a long time, does it ring true? I know ITV have obviously denied it, but does it ring true as something that, that could happen in, in that much, you know in a popular show like that, that producers could be doing these kinds of shenanigans behind the scenes? So I, I find it genuinely surprising. I'm sure there's a very dedicated and professional team on The Jeremy Carl Show, and I'm sure there's a lot of good people who are going to be out of work as a result of this. Um, so... I, I would I would find it surprising if that was the case. Now that doesn't mean that it doesn't go on and um, that producers induce their participants into behaving in ways that uh, might be beneficial for our entertainment in, uh, at home. But to to go to that kind of level would be uh, surprising and shocking. I think. But I mean, it's it's clear just from watching the show that a producer is standing there backstage saying, do you know what he's saying about you? He's slagging you off. Go and give it to him. I mean, that's quite clearly happening off camera because they're ranting at the camera before they even got on the stage, aren't they? They're being psyched up. The job of the producer is to whip up a frenzy of psychological torment for the people that are there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why, you know, a judge famously referred to the show as human bear baiting. And I think that now the show has been, you know, rocked by the scandal and then subsequently taken off air. It has maybe made some viewers of the show stop and reconsider if it, you know, realised that it really was very past its sell-by date. And is Dickinson's real deal going to descend into shouting at antiques? (laughs) (laughs) Or shouting at inanimate objects? (laughs) Or a premium phone rate line to enter if you think you've got a nasty antique? I don't know. Um, uh, Let's talk about streaming and Disney has assumed full operational control of streaming service Hulu. What does that mean, Jake? Well, it's just further shifting of the sands in the world of uh, TV mega-mergers. Uh, I mean, we've seen some extraordinary business done over the last just few months, uh, even just in isolation, the Disney 21st Century Fox deal. I mean, I think this this to me is Disney taking a big deep breath uh, before it tries to blow down the Netflix house of cards. Um, <laughs> Available on Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it'll be fascinating to see what they do. Uh, whether they decide to roll Hulu in with their own streaming service, Disney Plus, which is launching later this year, um, or and that feels like a legitimate distinct. suggestion here because we don't really know what Hulu is. But in America, it's got a massive <laughs> brand, isn't it? Yes, it is. A bit weird uh, for them I'm sure it is a bit, a bit weird for them, particularly given the ownership structure of Hulu, which was really uh, unusual in the fact that you know you had. Uh, 30% ownership from Comcast, Fox, Disney. Um, it was a bit like uh, an upmarket UView uh, in, well, in, the UK, in the UK. It was arguably a bit like Britbox, which, of course, you know, the BBC yes. and ITV are trying to do at yes. the moment and is floundering, we hear. Uh, well, it hasn't even launched yet. No, but <laughs> that's, a bit, that's a bit unfair. Teething problems around some of the rights. And yes. you sort of think if in America the big guys are taking their money away, Disney are, or Comcast are allowing Disney to buy their bit, it seems strange that in the UK we're trying to work on a solution which is everyone owning a bit of a thing that's a bit like Hulu? Well, I mean, look, there's no doubt that there are uh, uh, some inherent issues with BritBox. You know, it's 
10 years too late. <laughs> yeah, that's a big <laughs> for, for starters. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's not the fault of the broadcasters. No. Um, you know, I'm sure your listeners will be well aware of Project Kangaroo, which uh, was snuffed out by the regulators um, before, it even, uh, before it even hopped into life. I think it's better late than never. I think it's, it's, a, it's a noble ambition. And to be quite you know, honest, as an advocate of the industry, it's good to see broadcasters working together to come up with a solution. And Rebecca, we learned this week that Netflix and Amazon have made over a billion pounds from UK streaming customers in the last year. There does still seem to be room for more players in this market. Yeah, what makes it difficult, I think, for Netflix rivals now, um, especially BritBox, the, the problem is, is that from the perception of the viewer, Netflix arrived and it gave us all this stuff that we'd never you know, had at our fingertips before. And now all these companies are coming back in, you know, BBC, ITV, and then you know, across the pond, you've got um, NBC, CBS, etc., all launching their own streaming platforms and basically trying to take it back off of... Uh, Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu. And so it's kind of difficult to launch a service positively when it's predicated on the fact that you can no longer get all this stuff you're mm. enjoying, but if you come and take out another subscription separately, you can see it all again. You know, so it just it doesn't really have the glitz and the excitement of those original streaming pioneers. And also predicated on the idea that young people no longer will find pirated versions of these things. And it was only five years ago that that was the standard way for younger people to find this stuff. And and now, because Netflix have made it so easy, all the millennials are watching Friends. But, I mean, that could change back again, couldn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, pirating is still a big thing. And uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll see some statistics about the final series of uh, Game of Thrones yeah. in the not-too-distant future. I think it's spot on because the fragmentation in the streaming landscape is, uh, is only getting worse. And at some point, that will have to change and consolidate around one or two services. Netflix, I think, has got too strong a, an established position now. I think they will they will be in it for the long haul, but you might see some of these others falling away, which is kind of interesting given that Disney is trying to do this. Mm. Um, they're putting their eggs in now two baskets in the process. They've got a lot of in eggs. The pr- yeah, they've fair. got a lot of eggs, but in, in the process, they've taken stuff away from Netflix. Um, Three baskets, actually, because they've got yes. an ESPN streaming service. Yes, well, that's true. Yeah. So they're clearly betting big on it. But I think it ultimately... I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm saying there will be consolidation, but if you look at if you just look at broadcasting, there are lots of broadcasters who offer lots of different shows, mm. and it works. Maybe the same will will be said of streaming services in the future. All right, we'll be back with more media talk after this. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. 
That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Time for media news in brief now. Jake and Rebecca are still with me and black and minority led indies are still not being trusted to deliver programs. That's according to a broadcast survey of 14 BAME production houses. So the contention here is, Jake, that the broadcasters all say they want more diverse casts, more diverse crews, more diverse stories on telly, but then they're turning to production companies that aren't run by BAME people to make those shows. That's and the, right. And the contention is that's a problem, is yes, it? Yes, that, that is a problem. I think you're seeing two things going on at TV at the moment. I think you're seeing genuine change. On screen, there is more diversity being injected into well-established programs and new programming as well. I'll give you one good example, which is Alex Scott, uh, who is absolutely fantastic uh, football pundit, but she also happens to be a black woman. And she is doing a brilliant job on Match of the Day, on Sky. And you know, I think it's really refreshing to see her as part of football coverage in this country. And I think that is... Mostly down to her own talents, of course, but also it's it reflects the the broader diversity initiatives that are going on at the broadcasters. So, yeah, but that, that, that's that, that's, that's what we're, that's been made by yes, BBC Sport. So they're not BAME Indie, are they? No, I mean, but what I'm saying is we're seeing that on screen. the The harder thing, the second thing, mm. is 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 building it from the ground up, and that means working with production companies who have less experience potentially and. Um, who are recruiting talent from more diverse backgrounds and giving them the confidence and the commissions to go out and tell their stories. That's that's the more difficult step for the industry and that's what the industry is going to have to do over the coming years if it really is going to make a meaningful change uh, on these issues. And, you know, Seleni Henry, who has been a a fantastic advocate of this issue, he edited uh, an issue of broadcast a couple of weeks ago. Um, He is still banging the drum for uh, ring-fenced funds uh, for BAME programming. Deeds, not words, he said. Deeds, not words. That, to me, feels like the most credible option on the table for lighting a fire under these issues and making broadcasters commission programs authentically from BAME producers. But, I mean, when you talk about a BAME indie, what you really mean is the people that run it are from an uh, an ethnic minority background, but there might just be two of them sitting in their house at home or in an office in Shoreditch somewhere. It's not, you know, any company run by anyone can go on to employ hundreds of people of colour to make a show about their experience. Does it matter who the boss is? Well, I think the argument in TV would be that if you have diverse commissioners and diverse senior producers, that the kind of inclination will be to tell stories that are better aligned with their own life experiences. That's, I guess, what the the point is being made here by some of the producers in broadcast. I suppose the risk is, what I'm saying is, you risk people saying that it becomes a kind of ghettoised thing. That if you want to make some of this BAME content, which everyone says they want more of, then mm. you yourself have to be AME. Otherwise, you're, you don't, you know, which means that all the other production companies that aren't BAME-led mm. will think, oh, right, well, that's not our responsibility then. Well, the thing is, is that TV channels and, and uh, movie studios, etc., they want this content. They recognise there's, ap- there's an appetite for it. But, you know, they want it framed for a white audience. And that's 
historically been the way that stories about non-white people have been told. And so I think that there's a kind of there's still a lingering prejudice that you need white people to kind of act as an intermediary and translate um, stories, you know, about people from different ethnic minorities mm. into a white experience that the viewer will understand. And they, they, there's still this mistrust that a BAME-led company wouldn't do that sufficiently well. I mean, obviously, there's no evidence to that. And also, it's, it's still the case that, um, you know, behind the scenes of TV and films is still just as exclusionary and, you know, barrier-ridden as in front of the camera, maybe even more so, because, you know, we often talk about how, like, working-class people and non-white people are excluded in a lot of ways from acting opportunities, but there are still those pathways, you know, you can still break into acting through open auditions or through scholarships, etc. Whereas behind the scenes, there, there isn't really that much of a, you know, there aren't really these programs. And it, a lot of it is still based on knowing the right person, you know, having a coffee with the right person. There is a very different attitude to all this stuff in the States, though, isn't there? Maybe because the audiences have shown they're, they're hungry for it. Look at Daniel Kaluuya's deal. Yeah, now he he is British, um, but you've probably seen him as an American on screen in Get Out. That was his um, his massive success, and yeah, his um, production company Fifty Nine Percent has got a first look deal with Paramount Pictures. Um, but again, it's another example of a time when you know a British person from an ethnic minority background has had to go to the US to to fulfil their um, opportunities. Okay, let's talk about radio. And I guess the headline of the radio ratings, the Rajars, this quarter round was Chris Evans. It would be inevitably, wouldn't it? There's a natural interest there. Can he maintain his audience from Radio 2? Obviously not. But he's done pretty well, hasn't he, Jake? I think they'll be very happy with a million listeners. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, they're never going to compete with Radio 2. And, and I'm sure he would be the first to admit that. Um, and I'm sure a million probably would have been a milestone in their minds. Whether they'll be happy with that in the long term, whether that's sustainable commercially, uh, remains to be seen. But we don't know yeah. what they paid for him. They don't know. So we what, we don't know what they paid for him. They, they haven't got advertising because yeah. they've got this deal with Sky. You know, one set of Rajars is not going to make or break Chris Evans's radio show on Virgin. But what's interesting about Virgin is they're not investing in the rest of the schedule in in anything like the same way, are they? Probably the the biggest name they have on there after Chris Evans is Eddie Temple Morris, who, you know, is a sort of is a radio presenter name, but not on the scale of Chris Evans. It, people predicted when they got Chris that they'd get loads of, you know, they'd get a big name for drive time, but they didn't. Well, maybe this is to, to, to do with the fact that we don't know how much they paid for him. Maybe they're uh, <laughs> trying to hold fire for a while on any uh, big signings. But I mean, I think, you know, I think it was something around 800,000 people they think he brought with him from Radio 2, which is, you know, a very significant number. And if some of them stay and tune into some of the other programmes, I think that's going to um, that's going to reap dividends for Virgin. And on Radio 2, we've seen that Zoe Ball has basically managed to keep things as they were. She's lost about 18,000 listeners, so really just a drop in the ocean. It's confusing then, isn't it? I mean, well done her and well done everyone at Radio 2. But then if if Chris Evans has taken 800,000 listeners with him, where has Zoe Ball found those 800,000 listeners from? I mean, are they Radio 1 listeners? Are they? I know it's difficult. Greg James listen. hasn't lost 800,000 no, exactly. listeners, though. So I don't know. I mean, look. I, th- I think they'll be breathing a huge sigh of relief at Radio Two Towers. <laughs> I think they will. Yeah, yeah. Uh, LBC as well broke their own audience record again. They're now averaging two point two five million listeners a week. Will that sustain after this uh, sort of period of very tumultuous politics finally passes? Or when's that then? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or are we just stuck with this? So actually, LBC is going to continue to grow. Um, I think that talk that talk radio 
in the UK, especially kind of aggressive, opinionated talk radio, hasn't really taken off until now. It's always been more of a US phenomenon. Mm. So I wonder if maybe this is something that's here to stay. Like listeners in the UK have traditionally preferred, you know, Radio 4 style, um, gentler debate. And so maybe there is going to be appetite for this real, you know, blood pumping, shouting down the microphone at one another. And do you think LBC have more to gain as well uh, from this Conservative leadership race? Because they're going to be broadcasting debates, aren't they, along with the BBC and Sky? They are. I mean, they're they're a fantastically smart radio station and um, they consistently have big names. And they seem to be very well embedded in the Conservative Party. I mean, Boris Johnson's done things with them. Um, I heard Esther McVeigh chairing a show the other day. Uh, I'm sure they'll do very well out of all of this. I think it's fair to say probably Times subscribers are probably fans of following the Tory leadership campaign as well. And we have a story about the Times digital subscriptions churning rates. Come back, everybody. Um, new software which tailors email newsletters to readers' interests has been credited with cutting subscription cancellations at the Times by half during the trial period for the AI system they called James. Do you remember, Rebecca, off the top of your head, what that's an acronym for? Oh, no, but it's something really stupid, like something off a 60s spy show. Yes, it is. It's the Journey Automated Messaging for Higher Engagement. Although that spells, to my mind, James. James. Yeah. James. her. Jam her. Well, that's not a you know credible butler's name, isn't it? So. <laughs> but anyway, this is big news, isn't it? If you because this is one of the big problems that any digital publisher has is maintaining mm. the people that try out the free subscription and then, frankly, aren't very interested anymore and forget to cancel. Eventually, one day they will remember to cancel and they're gone. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm surprised in a way that you know that this kind of technology hasn't been you know used in this exact way before. And but actually, I guess if I thought of it maybe that would be something that we were doing um but it seems so um intuitive that the main problem is when you've got a uh you know a news site that's got full of great content how do you get people to see the content that is going to impress them you know your best pieces of news writing may not appeal to one person you know but lifestyle things might and at the moment up to this point it's been kind of a crapshoot you know of the editorial team saying well these are the best things we've got so put them in the newsletter and see what happens but this is just revolutionary and I think it's the kind of thing that you know I would personally you know that would get me signing up I don't want to be bombarded with you know the day's 10 top you know, news stories that I can see everywhere. But if I could have personalised content tailored to my interests, then although on one hand I'm a bit nervous because it's the bubble again, isn't it? But, Mm. you know, it is really appealing and it would make me think twice probably about cancelling a a subscription or a newsletter subscription or what have you. I also love the idea of having my own digital news butler. Um, (laughs) You've really bought into the premise. Yeah. And I love the way they call it AI, which makes it sound far more sexy than what it actually is. It's just basically cookies, isn't it? Yes, yeah. You've clicked Um, on a football story before. Yeah, exactly. It's a a sophisticated algorithm. Um, But we live in a world in which algorithms tell us what to watch every day. So why not? allow them to tell us what to read, mm. uh, which seems eminently sensible to me. I mean, I think always the fear with these kinds of things is you start to have the debate about robots replacing journalists and all of that. But I think as long as... That's not a journalist's job, is it, sending <laughs> an email newsletter? I mean, that is No, marketing. but it's a journalist's job to editorialise what your readers think will be the biggest news stories of the day and present them with a neatly packaged mm. uh, newsletter. I think that is a, that is a good journalistic service. Um, and I wouldn't want to see that kind of thing replaced. You know, we do similar newsletters at uh, Business Insider where we 
we pull together some big stories and you know they're popular products because people trust that we are going to handpick some of the most interesting things and help them do their jobs better as a result but you haven't got a paywall have you we do have a paywall oh do you for you know well we we have Maybe a, don't we have subscribe a, we, have a, we have a paywall for a limited uh like wing of our content okay uh, the majority of it is free to to view but, but the point that i was going to make which is interesting with the times is they're sort of doing what feels slightly counterintuitive in a way. You think if you have a paywall, then it's all about super serving your biggest fans. These are people that are prepared to pay for your product. So keep telling those people that love your product, come to an event, give us more money, tell everyone how great we are. But actually, it seems like the Times' research is saying, well, those people who love the Times, they're going to read the Times anyway. Mm. Instead, the people you need to be super serving are the people who subscribe once, kind of forgot about it, and are likely to lapse. Keep pursuing them to stay subscribed engage the least engaged people yeah it's what's making them feel you know loved and you know paid attention to that they get it's almost like you know they're paying so they expect a service and you feel like you're getting more of a service if you even if it's been generated by an algorithm if you feel like someone or something is putting together all this stuff specifically aimed at you i guess you feel like maybe you're getting more value for money i guess the other concern from the journalistic perspective is you know it's not just the journalists deciding what's going to go in the newsletter but deciding what they're going to write and so the times have tried to get out ahead of this criticism by saying that it's going to be information it's going to be data informed not data led but you know we've heard stuff like that before plenty and you know the concern then is if you're thinking oh these things do these subjects do really well in the newsletter if only we had more stories like that Mm. then it sort of turns into that leaning more on the editorial team of guys it would be helpful if you could write three more stories about this subject that people seem to be interested in. And of course, then then you ironically get into the position, which I was just saying is is an interesting spin on it, but is a problem, is if you start making more content that's going to appeal to the people who are least engaged in what you're doing for everybody, then the Mm. people who are most engaged will become the least engaged. Yeah, absolutely. It's a a horrible balancing act. Jake, you were a bit dismissive about the technology, but there's a software company behind it, Twipe, that intends other companies to take their product on board do you think that they'll have customers do i think they'll have customers i'm sure i'm sure yeah working with the times is a good client uh, i'm sure others will be interested in seeing what they've done i don't think it's quite right for business insider given our big broad mainstream audience um, but it's 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 an yeah, interesting the sound experiment. of their hopes being dashed there rebecca <laughs> okay time for our much vaunted media quiz This week, it's a podcast special. I'm going to ask you three questions from the world of podcasting, and whoever gets the most correct wins the game. So you buzz it with your name and you know the answer. Rebecca, you will say... Rebecca. And Jake, you will say... Jake. Yeah, not Jahe. Here is podcast story number one. What has Spotify called its new software for budding podcasters? (laughs) (laughs) Rebecca. Yes. Soundtrap or something. Yes, and it's not an acronym this time. (laughs) Uh, Soundtrap for storytellers is its full name, but I'll give you the point. Uh, It is free software that apparently, and I've seen these products be promised a lot in the past, but this is a big open product that you can go ahead and try, so I will. It syncs with your audio recording so you can edit speech like a text document. I still can't visualise it. I, like, I read about it and I read that sentence that must have been ten times and thought, no, I still don't quite get it, but maybe this is why this is going to be the software for me because it does seem to be as idiot-proof as they can possibly make it. So it just transcribes it. speech. So it transcribes what you've just said. Yeah. And then so that you don't have to open up an audio editing package, you look at the words that you said and just cut and the just words cut out. But I was, surely it would start, oh, sound really awkward and stilted. Well, yes, arguably it would. But it would be easy and simple. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. It's free. 
It's a free and trial. Like a limited free trial, version. and yeah. then you have to you have to pay eventually. Then you have to pay for the damn development costs eventually. But yeah, I mean, look, sounds like a great tool for journalists potentially. If you want, if you're if you're transcribing a load of interviews, and the software does it for you, not bad. Oh yeah, yeah, and actually, as well, if if you want to turn something around quickly for a website. You don't need the bit of flim flam in the middle. You need the bit where he said this and the bit where he said that. And actually, you don't need it to sound like a polished audio product. I mean, that you can see the use there, can't you, for news? Yeah, and every journalist wants to be a podcaster now, so. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, right, here's podcast question number two. What tech development could impact on the titles podcasters use? Jake. Jake. Google is going to start indexing podcast titles. Correct. Podcast episode titles will now show up in Google searches. Could that change the way that we end up... Naming our shows, people are always people are already aimed at SEO, aren't SEO they? friendly podcast titles. Yeah. Some, oh god, some, shudder at the thought. Someone who I really ought to credit, but I can't remember their name, to said tweeted this amazing tweet where they were like, "Oh, I hope you look forward to my new show. What time is the Super Bowl on? Who are they married to, and what is its net worth?" <laughs> <laughs> um, but I guess any place to put podcasts. I mean, the whole philosophy of podcasting is to get it in as many places as possible, right? You make the product for free, you distribute it in as many places as possible. If it's going to be on Google and you can press play from Google because people are searching for something with words without writing the word podcast, that has to be a good thing. Yeah, it's definitely going to make um, a lot of podcasts more visible. I think in the past, the ones that have been the, have had that search visibility are ones that upload their transcripts. Yes. This American Life always comes really high when, you, when you're searching for subjects that it's covered in its episodes. But this is going to definitely boost the visibility. And here is the final question. It's the tiebreak. Listen to this podcast pastiche by comedy writer Matt Bushell and name me the real-life podcast that inspired him. But if it was a trade war they wanted, what they didn't realise was China already had the upper hand. It's Wednesday, May 15th, 2019. Buzz in with your name when you know the answer. <laughs> I object to this because he was so wrong. Rebecca. Yes, Rebecca. Um, serial. Yes. And basically all other American, this American life kind of. But those are not news podcasts. Stables. He cited the Daily and Serial. As the, the Daily. Right, that is, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's only a certain amount of. I, I should good... say he's playing the piano in the video. That's why people think it's funny. I mean, hats off to him as well. You know, it was very well done. And it was funny, but it's like, in fairness, there are only a certain amount of ways you can present information in a strictly audio format. And it's not, yeah, okay, some of these musical stings have become a bit overused. But it takes a parody to m- make people wake up and realise that maybe they're falling into those tired patterns. Jake, Audible UK have announced a £5,000 audio drama production grant with free access to Audible Studios to develop one of their own productions. Do you think that's possibly the next big growth area in podcasting? Drama? drama? Yeah. Well, I mean, Radio 4 has done it successfully, so why can't podcasts? Yeah, not a five grand for a series, though. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know how many series that's supposed to fund. Uh, but it'd be interesting to see, won't it? Um, uh, who won then? Rebecca, I guess. Yeah. Yay. Congrats. Yay. Uh, that is it for our show today. My thanks to Rebecca Gilly and to Jake Cantor. If you like what we're up to here on the Media Podcast and you want to help us keep doing it, then consider taking out a voluntary subscription. We need even less than an Audible Audio Drama Production Grant. Uh, just head to themediapodcast.com slash donate and choose whatever amount you like to keep us going all year round. You can catch up with our previous episodes and get new ones as soon as they're released by subscribing for free on our website, themediapodcast.com. I'm Ollie Mann, the producer Rebecca Greisdale. Sherry, the Media Podcast is a PPM production. Until next time, bye-bye.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.